Um, the second passage for today is from Second Kings, uh, chapter six, verses twenty-four to chapter seven, verses two. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for eighty shekels of silver, and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by in the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shephat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. How about I pray for us as we dive into this? Our Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge that this passage in your word is difficult. We ask that as we explore it, as we seek to understand it, that your spirit would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you respond to the judgment of God. This is uh, not exactly a popular topic these days. Out of what is a good desire to talk up the, the love of God, sadly many Christians have diminished or even rubbed out the judgment of God. But God's judgment is something that we cannot escape. We cannot escape it in life, we cannot escape it in death, and we cannot escape it in this passage. And so we must ask ourselves, how do you respond to the judgment of God? In this passage, we actually see lots of examples of how you shouldn't respond, most of whom are from the same guy. We see uh, mere mourning. We see blaming God. 
We see unrepentance and we see unbelief. And this morning, rather than uh, having points for you, uh, we're just going to walk through the passage and I'm going to point out those responses along the way, as well as reminding us of how the right response to God contrasts those responses. And so with our Bibles and hearts ready, let's meet this passage head on, beginning at verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. You know, one uh, interesting feature of this passage presents itself to us in the very first word. For those of you who were here last week, you might remember in verse 23 uh, that the Syrians no longer raided Israel after Elisha blinded them and then showed them mercy. And so it's fascinating to see that Immediately, in the next verse, we have afterward, that didn't happen. The king musters his army and and raids uh, Israel. And so you'd be right in, uh, you know, now wondering, why is that the case that the Bible would say in verse 23 that there's no more raids, and now suddenly, Ben-Hadad has escalated his war to a full-scale invasion and besieging, besieging the nation's capital of Samaria. Well, it's possible that this uh, could be because of um, the events of kings aren't always presented chronologically, as I've mentioned before. Uh, but I think that it's more likely showing us that the Syrians, they, they stopped their little skirmishes, their little raids into Israel, but that the tension between the two nations has now fully exploded into this um, full attack. Uh, for all of you uh, old, old school gamers, uh, this is like in Age of Empires when you finally built up all your armies and you think to yourself, yep, I've got a strong enough force to take out the blue player. All right? Which is always one person who shall not be named. And this, this doesn't surprise us, that this is what the king of Syria has done, right? Because even though both the kings of Israel and Syria witnessed some incredible signs through Elisha, which we saw, we saw that last week, ultimately the result of that was that they did not repent and turn to God. Neither of the kings did. And so, of course, when that is the case, when they still have hearts of stone, these rulers haven't realized that their rule is a temporary stewardship that is given to them by the greatest ruler of all creation. And so, inevitably, their own greed, their own pride, their own thirst and lust for power will always result in war. As James 4 reminds us, the cause of our fights and our quarrels that, are, that, that happen between us is our own passions within us. That's exactly what has happened with these two kings. Such passions have resulted in Syria and Israel at war. Ben-Hadad obviously thought his army was strong enough to take out Israel, and he was right. Israel was too weak and powerless to do anything to stop him. After all, again, as we saw last week, the only reason that they weren't completely flattened earlier was because of Elisha's miraculous intervention given by God. And so as a result of this besieging, there was a great famine in Samaria. As I'm sure you can imagine, uh, if a whole city 
It's a bit different these days, but back then, a whole city with its walls as its defences is surrounded by enemy forces, and they are barely holding on for dear life. It would become very difficult to maintain enough of a supply for necessities. And especially if, as was common in the Iron Age, which is around when this happened, farms and fields were outside of the city walls. I think it's likely that this was actually part of Ben-Hadad's military strategy, to to starve Israel out rather than just coming in and flattening them, perhaps making them surrender. And the result is that Samaria here, the Israelites were in a state of desperation, They were well and truly in survival mode. And so as we read in verse 26, inflation was through the roof. A donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and about 300 mils of dove's dung was was sold for five shekels. If you're wondering roughly how much it is, five shekels is about a month's worth of wages for, for that much dove's dung. So you get the idea of of how crazy these prices were. But you know, the other crazy part about it is is what's actually being sold, what's mentioned here. Firstly, a donkey's head was not something that your average Israelite would eat, right? It's not kosher, they weren't allowed to. But also, there's a bit of speculation as to exactly what dove's dung is. Uh, Some think that this could be a slang term for actual food. Uh, You're referring to carob beans or wild onions. Uh, There's some variants in translations, perhaps. Still others think that they really are talking about dove's dung and that it was used for fuel, to cook food, that kind of thing. And then others, when you're desperate, perhaps that is seriously what they were eating. Whatever the case, the point of this verse is clear. The famine was so severe. It was so terrible that people were willing to pay these prices for these things, which normally they would not even go near. And this sets us up to dip a toe into the question that I asked at the beginning. What's your attitude towards God when things are desperate? Now, hear me out. Even though in this circumstance, It's easier to see how this besieging of Samaria is God's judgment on the people of Israel, and we're going to get to that later. I understand that it's not so simple in our lives to be able to draw a straight line between God's judgment and difficult circumstances. Not every difficulty we experience is a direct consequence of our sin. After all, the world has also been corrupted by the fall, and therefore we experience desperation of many kinds. As 1 Peter 1 reminds us, we face these trials so that our faith may be tested and refined as gold. All of that said, what's your attitude towards God when things are desperate? Because in a small way, that is pointing you. That is nudging you to consider the judgment that is to come. It is telling you that there is something wrong with the world and reminds us of the fact that we all know that there is something wrong with us and that we ought to consider why that is the case and how we go about fixing it. Just keep that in the back of your mind as we keep going. 
crazy inflation on filthy food is just the beginning. What follows is even more horrific. Verse 26 tells us that the king of Israel was walking around on the city wall. He was probably inspecting defenses, that sort of thing, as you might uh, anticipate given the situation. And as he's doing so, a woman cries out to him. She might have been a woman who lived in the city wall, just as Rahab did, which we see in Joshua 2.15. Whoever this woman was, she was in a very desperate situation and crying out to the king for help. Which, of course, is what you do, right? If you're in trouble, if you need help, if you're in a desperate situation, who do you go to? Well, you go to the highest authority you can appeal to. And the king, he replies with uh, what at first might seem like a, a cold, heartless reply, but is actually more a helpless statement of fact. He says, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? He's, the king here is saying, everything is empty. The threshing floor has no wheat, has no grain. The wine press has no wine. We have nothing left. There is nothing I can do. And perhaps importantly here, the king realizes and he knows that the Lord is the one who is in control. There is a higher authority than even his who is calling the shots. Let's read what happens next from verse 28. And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. In a scene reminiscent of King Solomon settling a dispute between two ladies and a dead son. Very far removed from those days when a wise king ruled over Israel. We have here one of the most tragic stories in the Bible. Of two mothers being so desperate for food that they would eat their children. Make no mistake. This is meant to be shocking. It's, it's meant to be confronting and horrifying. It's not like God thinks this is a good thing that we should do and that we should copy it and that's why it's in here. No, this story highlights the terrible outcome of Israel under siege. It shows us what happens when desperate people are put in desperate situations. But that's not all it shows us. It's not like resorting to uh, cannibalism is your only option when you're starved and, and is therefore a, a morally neutral decision when you're backed into a corner. Hagar and the widow of Zarephath that Elijah ministered to show us specific examples of alternatives to this decision. We see that in Genesis 21:16 and 1 Kings 17:12. No, this story of these women in Samaria shows us at least two things. 
Firstly, it shows us how badly depraved the people of Israel have become. That these two mothers would not only consider this, but would actually follow through with it. Yes, when things are desperate, you might resort to doing things that you wouldn't normally do, like eating parts off a donkey's head or eating dove's dung if you're that desperate. But to eat your own children is a heinous sin, even in dire straits. It is never something in any situation that you could consider to be okay. And yet Israel have fallen very far. But secondly, and more importantly, this is also God's judgment for their sin. When Israel made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt, and they promised to be his people, to be his treasured possession, that they would represent his name on the earth. Not only did God promise great blessing and reward for their obedience, but also great curses and punishment for their disobedience. As we saw a few weeks ago, the bears that Elisha called down upon the boys was a fulfillment of God's covenant curse for Israel's disobedience, as seen in Leviticus 26:22. And here, in our passage, we see a fulfillment of what the Lord would tell them just a few verses later in Leviticus 26, 27, 29. But perhaps even more clearly, Then in these verses, God spells it out in Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 to 57. Now bear in mind, at the time of God giving the people of Israel these terms of the covenant, I'm pretty sure they would have been just as horrified as we are when we read it at the thought of what God says here. The purpose of it was supposed to make clear to Israel how sinning against God is no small matter. To abandon Him is to receive His wrath. Let me read it to you so you get a full sense of the weight of Israel's disobedience and abandoning God. I'll start with verses 45 to 46 to give us some context and then jump down to verses 52. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. 
the man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will be grudged to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter. Her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns." That's a sobering passage. And even knowing this, even knowing this, Israel strayed. How easy it is to forget the Lord. As we've seen throughout this series, over and over again, Israel, like a yo-yo, goes up and down in their devotion and obedience to God. Good kings rise up and lead the nation to faithfulness to the Lord, but then they are replaced with bad kings who lead the nation into idolatry again. God is patient, and He sends prophets who call the people back to faithful worship to the Lord, to the true God. Even in this instance, he delivers Israel despite the complete lack of repentance from the king and the people. He shows great patience and mercy again and again, and yet the people rebel again and again. And so here, in our passage, after delaying and delaying and showing grace over and over, God brings about what he said he would in Deuteronomy 28. This siege and its consequences are part of God's judgment on Israel's sin. And this isn't the last time it would happen. Lamentations 4.10 laments how it happens again during the exile. The same thing. You see, sadly what happens is that the later generations forget These things which were meant to be signs and wonders for offspring and generations to come. Sadly, they did not stick in their memories. Friends, how do you respond to the judgment of God? For those of us here today who are not part of ancient Israel, which I'm pretty sure is all of us, and therefore weren't part of that covenant which God made with them at Mount Sinai, we aren't liable to receive that same kind of judgment. But because all of us here are in Adam, as Romans 5 tells us, that means that we have received death as the consequence for our sin. And that's not just physical death, but it is spiritual, eternal death. 
The judgment of God on our sin is not just in the fallen creation that we live in, in the here and now. No. Our sin in Adam leads to a judgment that is far worse than what we even see here in this passage this morning. The horror of this passage is a mere echo compared to the horror of hell, which, as Jesus said, is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I know that makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But our passage this morning forces us to reckon with a God who is slow to anger, who is patient, who is abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And if that is true, then it is even more serious and horrific than the cannibalism of desperate women. How do you respond to that? You know, terrible things like this actually happen in our world every day. As I said before, we we in our society, in our culture, in our nation, we generally aren't confronted with those things. And none of us choose to go looking for them. For good reason. It's not the kind of thing that you want to keep filling your mind with. We'd rather put it out of our minds, understandably. But to put the severity of God's judgment out of our minds, that is fatal. Friends, if you're here this morning and if you don't know the salvation of God that is found in turning from your sin and trusting in Christ, then I urge you, do so today. The consequences of ignoring God's judgment are far too great to just leave it behind to just put it out of your mind and to say that you will figure it out later. And for all my brothers and sisters who have responded to Jesus, who have done that, how are you turning to the Lord? How do you turn to him when you are confronted with your own sin? The king, he has a response that is understandable, but is incomplete. Let's read from verse 30. Thanks. When the king heard the words of the woman... He tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. 
A sackcloth was usually worn as a sign of mourning. It's a, it's a coarse and uncomfortable material like Hessian, and that's the point. And here we see that the king was, he was already wearing it, because he was already greatly grieved by the city's dire straits. And now upon hearing about this awful story, he, he tears his clothes to expose the sackcloth underneath in a sign of public grief and mourning. But as will become even clearer later, this is, this is mere mourning. That is all it is. You see, you can be sad about sin. You can be sad, you can lament God's judgment and be grieved by it and think it is horrific and terrible. And it can still do nothing to turn you to God for His salvation. Just like the man in the iron cage in John Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress, who grieved his sin, but then refused to turn to God. Let this be a warning for each of us today. Mere mourning, mere sorrow for sin will not save. Tears of grief and sadness over the brokenness of our world, over the brokenness of your own sin and self, will not save. Sorrow must be accompanied by a turning, an intentional, a resolute turning from sin and trusting in Christ for His salvation. The king, he goes on to use a common oath formula that we've heard a few times, but perhaps most pointedly sounds very similar to the one that Jezebel made to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And King Jehoram, who's Jezebel's son, it's perhaps unsurprising that this is the same kind of oath that he would use to treat Elisha. You know, this is an interesting turn of events. Last week we saw that Elisha was helping the king and saving his life through the supernatural vision that God had given him, you know, something which I'm sure the king would have been extremely thankful for. I'm sure if he'd thought about it, he would have realized that without Elisha's help, Israel would have been destroyed long before now. But now, he thinks this calamity is Elisha's fault, all of it. Maybe he thinks that Elisha should have prevented this siege because, you know, as we saw last week, he can see the future. Why did he not warn? Maybe he thinks that Elisha should do something about it now. Why don't you pray to God and ask us to be delivered from this? Whatever the reason, the king has now gone from mourning the consequences of God's judgment to blaming him for the desperate circumstance. This is the Lord's fault. This is Elisha's fault. It's interesting that in verse 27, the king acknowledges the Lord's hand behind this, and yet, as we'll see even clearer, more clearly in verse 33, 
That is as far as his faith goes. He knows that the Lord is God and he doesn't believe that he, but he doesn't believe that he can or that he will save Israel and he is therefore turning his back on him. This is a bit like people who say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in God, but, but I don't like your Old Testament God. I don't like your Old Testament God of judgment. Friends, mere belief in God, even if you acknowledge the true God, even if you understand aspects of God that are true and right, will not save. As James 2.19 reminds us, even the demons believe, but their belief isn't anchored in trust in God, and that's why it causes them to shudder in fear. And this highlights to us the importance of a response to God's judgment that doesn't just stay in the realm of acknowledging our desperation and mourning over it. The king of Israel, he was supposed to lead the way, supposed to lead the nation in repentance and in turning to God by destroying the idols and smashing the high places, as many of the better kings of Israel did, like Hezekiah and Jehoshaphat. Have you noticed the total lack of repentance in the king's response? Friends, there is an ever-present danger in our lives of believing true things about God, but then never turning to Him so that He can turn our mourning into dancing, as Psalm 30 says. Do not simply grieve your sin and its consequences. Do not shift the blame for it back onto God by saying that He should have done things differently. That if I were Him, I wouldn't have done it this way. Instead, turn to the only one who can save you from them. Well, the king sends a messenger to Elisha to tell him what's coming for him. And we see in verse 32 that he's sitting in his house with the elders of Israel. Scripture doesn't tell us why, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were there because they knew these elders had realized that their only hope was with the man who spoke the very words of the Lord. These elders seem to have recognized that they needed to turn to the Lord in this time of great distress. Once again, Elisha proves that God grants him supernatural vision, telling the elders that, you know, here's what the king is about to do. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It was only a few verses ago it wasn't very long ago that Elisha was helping the king of Israel by foiling the king of Syria's plans, by telling him ahead of time what he was going to do. And yet now, in a somewhat ironic twist, it is the king of Israel who is after Elisha's life. And it is his plans that are being foiled by Elisha's God-given supernatural vision. So Elisha instructs one of them to shut the door and to stop him from getting in. And his rhetorical question, uh, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him, uh, is a tricky one to understand. Particularly because the king is referenced later on in chapter 7. The NIV assumes that the king is actually present after the messenger arrives. 
And personally, I think Elisha is here using a figure of speech to say that the messenger carries with him the king's intent of wanting to take off his head. But either way, the point is clear. This is the king's message. This is his intent. Let's read what happens next in verse 33. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? It seems like the messenger gets in before anyone can shut the door and he delivers this message. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? What seemed to be lurking beneath the surface in the king's previous responses now breaks through for all to see. You see, the king acknowledges that the Lord is sovereign. He acknowledges that the Lord is behind this. He perhaps even sees that this is God's judgment for his sin and for, his, for Israel's sin. But how does he respond? By saying, I don't care if God is my only option for deliverance from this trial. I don't want to wait for him to save me. He clearly doesn't care about us, so I'm not going to bother with him. He is unrepentant. And he is sick of waiting for God to do something. Instead of turning back to God and acknowledging how he and the nation have broken God's covenant, instead of repenting, he digs his heels in and he stubbornly refuses to turn to the Lord. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like giving up on God because he hasn't come through on his salvation yet? Maybe you trust in Jesus. Maybe you know the truth about him. The promise that he has given you, that he has redeemed you, and that he is coming back for you. But that promise of salvation just feels too far away. Maybe you feel like the trials and the struggles that, that you know they come from the Lord in this life, that you know that He's refining your faith through it, that they're just too much. That surely God has given up on me. Maybe you're beginning to doubt His goodness through it. Maybe you're beginning to doubt that he really is sovereign over your circumstances and that he really has saved you, that he really is saving you in the midst of it and that he really is going to complete that salvation and is coming back soon. Brother, sister, wait for him. Wait for him. Because even if you feel like you're hanging by a thread, remember the words of Samuel Rutherford, the 17th century Scottish pastor. 
I hang by a thread. But it is, if I may speak so, of Christ's spinning. His salvation has come to you in Christ. He is with you. He is at work in you now. And his final salvation is coming soon. A lot of the Christian life is waiting. I forgot some of the tea. A lot of the Christian life is waiting. Waiting for God to sanctify you. Waiting to see how God will use evil in your life for good. Waiting to see how these trials are refining and growing and building your faith. Waiting for Him to answer your prayers. Waiting for Him to finally redeem. But this isn't a passive waiting. We do not merely stand idly by, just waiting and twiddling our thumbs. Christian, beware the kind of spiritual resignation that can, that can take up residence in your heart, inch by inch, bit by bit. The kind of resignation that begins with a grumble and grows and grows to eventually just give up on God and prevents you from taking everything to the Lord in prayer. Your woes, your trials, your hopes, your petitions. Do not stand idly by. Psalm 130 doesn't just say, I wait for the Lord. No, it it opens with, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We cry out to the Lord, we hold fast to his word and we ask him to continue to make us more and more like Christ, to hold on to him, to cling to him. To trust in him. As we wait for him, we bring to him everything in prayer. We seek him. Friends, do not do as the king did. Do not merely acknowledge God, lay the blame of your troubles at his feet, and then turn and walk away. Be patient and pray. Because he alone gives life. He alone gives lasting hope. Israel desperately needed hope. But where could their hope come from? What could possibly deliver them from this tragedy? Let's read on from chapter 7, verse 1. 
But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. God speaks and he acts. God works through his word. Elisha makes the pronouncement of Israel's salvation in the reversing of the hyperinflation in the marketplace, making essentials like flour and barley affordable for everyone. And he says and announces to the messenger and to all in his presence in that moment, hear the word of the Lord. Hear his salvation. If you want to know how somebody comes to faith in Jesus, if you want to know how somebody continues to live as his son or daughter, here it is. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the good news that Christ has come and lived the perfect life that you never could and who has received God's wrath for your sin on the cross so that you could receive his salvation through faith in him. Whether for the first time or for the hundred and first time or the thousand and first time, this is the news, this is the word of the Lord that we need to keep on hearing. We are people shaped by hearing the word of the Lord, believing in it and holding on to it as our hope. In the midst of desperate times, in the midst of great trials, when we're faced with our sin and our own inability to save ourselves, when we're faced with the reality of our own judgment, we cry out to the Lord and we wait, knowing that He will do what He said He will do. He will do it. This declaration and this promise that Elisha makes on behalf of the Lord, this pronouncement of a, of a total reversal of the marketplace is unthinkable. This is nothing short of the impossible. For Elisha to say this, he might as well be saying that God is going to rain down manna from heaven. And this, of course, explains the captain's response. If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This is, it's, what you've just said is ridiculous. I can't even envisage a situation where that could be possible. You can understand why he would think that. It would be like somebody today saying, global poverty is, is going to end tomorrow. So the impossibility of, his, of it is understandable. But the problem is in his response. He says, if the Lord himself did this, surely that's not possible. Basically, even if the creator of the universe made it rain manna, that's, 
you can't make those prices just suddenly shift. You see, the captain's response was one of unbelief. The captain received God's judgment as Elisha pronounced it upon him. Not because he had doubts, but because he ultimately did not believe. This wasn't just just a doubt like many, if not all, faithful believers throughout history wrestle with and have wrestled with in their own journey of faith. Nor was it a simple exclamation about how impossible it seemed. Oh, but that's crazy. No, this was a hardened, unbelieving response about about what God was able to do. Even if God did open the windows of heaven, I still don't believe that He could do it. Even if God really is the God of grace that you claim that He is, He could never forgive someone like me. Even if God really is patient with me, I've failed Him too many times. Even if God is good, He doesn't know what's best for me. What has God said in His Word that you struggle to or don't want to believe? Where are you tempted to have a faith that acknowledges the possibility of God doing impossible things but struggles to believe that He really does do them? Brothers and sisters, will you wait for what He has promised and keep turning to Him in repentance and in faith, trusting in His Word? Where you struggle to believe, hold fast to what He has said. Hear the Word of the Lord. Remind yourself of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. He is patient towards you. Remind yourself of 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Christian, if you're feeling like the road is long and if you're feeling like you're ready to give up, do not be like the captain or the king. Don't despair and wallow in unbelief. But hold fast to the word of the Lord. Remind yourselves of His promises, of His goodness of His grace and His mercy and His love towards you. And remind yourself that He will surely do it. Cry out to Him out of the depths and know that He is a God who does impossible things. 
And the most amazing of which of those is taking sinners like us who don't naturally believe in Him, who don't naturally seek Him, who don't naturally turn to Him or wait patiently for Him. And He takes us and saves us by His grace, replacing our hearts of stone with our hearts of flesh, giving us new desires for Him and for His glory and for His purposes in this world. He has done that. He is doing that, and He will surely complete that. Wait for Him. Friends, do not let the judgment of God be something that you change channels from. Do not let the judgment of God be something that you try to deny or try to cover up or try to ignore. Let the recognition of His coming judgment cause you to respond by turning to His Son who came into the world 2,000 years ago not to condemn the world but to save it. But here's the thing. He will come again. And the next time He comes, it will be to judge those who rejected Him and to save those who trusted Him. How will you spend your days between now and then? Will you mourn God's judgment? Will you blame Him for your trouble and then persist in unrepentance and unbelief? Or will you turn to Him for salvation? Wait for Him and patiently pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we are sobered by what we read in this passage. And we confess that more often than not, we live our lives ignoring or pushing aside the reality of the severity of your judgment. Father, may we not Live our lives doing that. But may we all, I pray for each of us in this room, may we all, Lord, realize and recognize that you alone are our hope and trust in you and turn to you And wait for you as we anticipate the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
in whose name we ask these things. Amen.